It's 7.43. This is West Virginia Morning. I'm Chuck Anzalevich. There's a movement in Elkins to make square dancing more inclusive by getting rid of gender-specific call language. Simply get out of the habit of saying, swing her, or like, you know, gents to the center. You know, those are ways that I can just slightly adapt it, and it becomes a little bit more warm. That story and more coming up on this West Virginia Morning. Support for West Virginia Morning is proudly provided by Luke Frazier. Rainfall over the past 24 hours has quelled fires in West Virginia. Brianna Heaney reports. Major decreases in active fires are largely due to the half inch of rainfall over the southern region of the state, where the majority of the fires are. Jeremy Jones, state forester, says the state is closing in on 100% containment with all fires, and more rain is on the way. Thanks to um, you know the, the nice rain that pretty much covered the entire state today, or will cover um, as we get into the evening hours, um, all of the fires in West Virginia that are under state jurisdiction are um, under control. However, the over 11,000-acre Matt's Creek Fire in Virginia could be blowing some smoke up into the southern coalfield region through the Thanksgiving holiday. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney in Charleston. City officials in Charleston want to pause water and gas rate increases for local residents in the wake of recent outages. Curtis Tate has more. Charleston Mayor Amy Goodwin and members of the City Council have asked the West Virginia Public Service Commission to reject or delay proposed rate increases by West Virginia American Water and Mountaineer Gas. If the PSC approves the increases for both companies, they would take effect in a matter of weeks. City officials want the PSC to at least delay the increases for Westside residents until April 1st. Hundreds of residents on the west side lost gas service on November 10th when a high-pressure water main burst, flooding gas lines with water. As of Tuesday, Mountaineer Gas had restored service to 1,000 customers and about 90% of the 46 miles of affected gas lines. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston. In a new episode of Us and Them, host Trey Kay looks at our erosion of trust in science. There was a time when the scientific advances were heralded. They saved lives. They told us more about our world. The Pew Research Center shows that Americans' trust in scientists declined during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, some say scientists are not always worthy of our trust. At a recent event at Marshall University, Trey guests talked about our plethora of information and its impact on our level of trust. In this excerpt, we hear in this order from Dr. Adam Franks and Professor Habiba Chirchir of Marshall and Professor Jonathan Zimmerman from the University of Pennsylvania. I think one of the big problems is just uh, too much information out there. Now, that sounds bad to say, you know, too much information. Everybody should have access to information. But you got to think about the quality of the information that you have. And a lot of times, misinformation markets itself a lot better than we do as scientists, too. And so that kind of uh, gets out to the public a little faster. But from a standpoint of of the COVID vaccine, I've had patients um, who I've talked to, I've, I've had conversations with and say, okay, so you're due for a COVID vaccine. Are you, are you wanting to get that today? And they'll say no. And I'll, I'll, I'll push a little bit just because I want to make sure that that I'm trying to do what I feel is the right thing to do. And, and I'll say, well, now, 
hold on a second. Let's let's talk about this. You know, you you trust me for your diabetes medication. You trust me to monitor you. So you know, for your colorectal cancer. Why don't you? You know, you don't trust me about the COVID vaccine. That doesn't make any sense. And they'll just look at me and say, no, not about this. And and the door is just shut on that. One of the things that came up in the event that we had at West Virginia University about distrust in media was that there needs to be more media literacy. Is that what you both are advocating for, that that there needs to be that type of discussion of, of in our schools of how it is that we discern this information, that that's not being, well, Habiba, let me just run it. You're nodding your head there. Yeah, because this is something that we do. I think a lot of faculty here, this is an, uh, something that we intentionally bring to the attention of our students right from the beginning of our, of our course, that there are sources that you can rely on that can be trusted, that are peer-reviewed. And even if you went to Wikipedia, and you can get that source right there on the Wikipedia page, and follow up on it to confirm um, uh, its validity. So we do try, maybe we haven't done such a good job as Finland is doing, but I think all across a higher education, this is a big push in, uh, in classrooms to do this. And, and Trey, I'll, I'll give you a good example from my personal life. You know, I'm a newspaper columnist, and it's not, uh, uh, it's not infrequent that my students will often ask, like, Professor, why write for the newspaper? Why not just write for a blog? I mean, nobody except old people reads a physical newspaper anyway. What's the difference? And my answer is pretty simple. When I write for the newspaper, I'm fact-checked. It's true, it's a free country, and I can post whatever I'd like on a blog. But nobody is going over what I wrote and saying, now, wait a second, how do you know that? Right, and let's click on the link to that source, and let's see if it's a it's a valid source, and so on. But of course, you know, it it may well be that even though I'm fact checked, people aren't trusting the newspaper I write for, which is a different That's problem. That was an excerpt from the latest Us and Them episode called Diminished Trust in Science. It was a collaboration with Marshall University's John Deaver Drinko Academy. To hear the rest of the episode, tune in on Thanksgiving night at 8 p.m. on West Virginia Public Broadcasting, where you can hear the entire episode, and there will be an encore broadcast on Saturday, November 25th at 3 p.m. Us and Them is supported by the West Virginia Humanities Council, the CRC Foundation, and and the Daywood Foundation. This is West Virginia Morning. It's 7.50. Across the state today, mostly cloudy with a slight chance of scattered light rain. Highs will be in the 40s tonight, mostly partly cloudy with lows in the 30s, and tomorrow mostly sunny with highs in the 50s. Support for West Virginia Public Broadcasting is provided by Marshall Health, providing comprehensive primary and specialty care throughout southern West Virginia and the tri-state region. More at marshallhealth.org. And by the West Virginia Symphony, presenting Sounds of the Season, December 1st, 2nd, and 3rd in Lewisburg, Charleston, and Parkersburg. Tickets and information at westvirginiawvsymphony.org.
Calling a square dance is a skill that's been handed down for generations, but some of the language used can be a little old-fashioned. A growing number of callers are updating that language to be more inclusive. Folkways reporter Lydia Warren has the story. It's a warm July night in Elkins, West Virginia, and 20 couples are square dancing at an outdoor pavilion. Twinkle lights shine and paper lanterns sway in the warm breeze as a string band plays. This is the Augusta Heritage Center in Elkins, West Virginia, where they've been hosting square dances for decades. Twenty-five-year-old artist and Elkins resident Nevada Triple calls out moves like promenade, join hands, and circle to the left. Unlike the square dances you probably did in gym class, Nevada's calls have no gendered language, no ladies and gents, and no swing your girl. And this is on purpose. Before she learned to call square dances, Nevada grew up dancing in Elkins. We always had the kind of dance scene where like everybody dances with everybody, you know, like you change partners after every dance, regardless of like who you came with. Um, and I think that was like also a part that made it really inviting and inclusive because it just like didn't really matter who you were dancing with and, or any of that. Nevada noticed that the language of the calls didn't necessarily reflect the people on the dance floor. Sometimes there would be an uneven ratio of women to men on the floor and using ladies and gents just didn't make sense. Some folks might want to dance with the same gender partner, whether it's a spouse, a friend, or a kid. And, of course, there might be dancers who don't identify with being called either a lady or a gent. Nevada thought everyone would feel welcome if callers used gender-free language. And making sure there are calls any gender can dance to keeps the dance floor full. Nevada is part of a new wave of callers in the Appalachian square dance scene who are trying to make dances more welcoming. They're sharing their new calls with each other in a zine called Circle Up. Nevada wrote this call for Circle Up. The zine is a small, glossy booklet with handwritten and illustrated instructions on how to call 17 gender-free square dances, as well as some non-touching and seated dances for participants who prefer or need these accommodations. This zine just kind of feels like it's a large invite. It's like, here are some people that have some ideas. That's Becky Hill, a professional dancer who became a caller when she lived in Elkins. She mentored Nevada and curated the Circle Up zine. We're not claiming to be experts. We're not claiming to be the only way forward. We are just the ones that have decided to start this conversation and to be a little bit more loud about that. For Becky, creating a welcoming space is just a matter of bringing out aspects of the tradition that are already present. Like, you don't have to change Chase the Rabbit, Chase the Squirrel. We don't have to change Birdie in the Cage. We don't have to change all these things. It's just like providing options and invitation to callers to just think about like, oh, can I just simply get out of the habit of saying swing her or like, you know, gents to the center. You know, is there ways that I can just slightly adapt it and it becomes a little bit more warm? Of course, making square dances more welcoming is about more than just gender and language. It's also about race. The square dance community, or like the old-time traditional music community, it's pretty white. That's musician, dancer, and community organizer Ian Tran, who splits her time between Floyd, Virginia, and Brooklyn, New York. 
Ian visited Elkins for the Augusta Heritage Center's Old Time Music Week. The music is uh, does not come from entirely white roots. The banjo comes from Africa. Like it, the, there are fiddles in Africa. Also, the people in the community are still overwhelmingly white. Ian says she did a survey of people in the traditional music and dance scene and found that some people did feel unwelcome at jams, dances, and festivals. So she formed a group to take action. The makeup is people of color, people with disabilities, trans people. There's also an indigenous person in, in the group, and there's a white male middle-aged organizer also. This group made a set of community principles to create more welcoming spaces in the scene. They included guidelines like not using slurs and listening to others. The principles were illustrated and printed into a poster, and that poster is tucked into Circle Up. Our hope is really that people will take the principles, uh, use what's valuable to them, and, and use them in their own communities. Like, bring them to your local square dance and stick them on the wall, or bring them to your local you know, folk school and stick them on the wall, or your event, or if you have a camp at Clifftop or at, at Galax or whatever festival you go to, and you can just clip it up to your campsite that, to say, like, this 10 by 10 space is my safe, safer space that I'm welcoming people into, and these are the principles that we are going to try to stick by in order to make this a more welcoming community. I am Becky and Nevada say they're excited to see the tradition become more welcoming and, in turn, grow into a space where even more people feel at home on the dance floor. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Lydia Warren in Elkins, West Virginia. To hear that story again and more, listen to Inside Appalachia this coming Sunday morning at 7 and Sunday evening at 6 right here on West Virginia Public Broadcasting. West Virginia Morning is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting, which is solely responsible for its content. You can keep up with the latest West Virginia news throughout the day at our website, wvpublic.org. Support for our news bureaus comes from Shepherd University. West Virginia Morning is produced with help from Bill Lynch, Brianna Heaney, Caroline McGregor, Chris Schultz, Curtis Tate, Emily Rice, Eric Douglas, Liz McCormick, and Randy Yoey. Liz McCormick produced today's show. I'm Chuck Ann Zalevich. You've been listening to West Virginia Morning. <laughs>